Welcome to Phrenesis, a show dedicated to issues in political philosophy. Each episode will take a close look at important essays and ideas in political and social thought, linking them to historical and contemporary debates, which is to say, finding where they are discussed in the footnotes to Plato. Hello and welcome again to another episode of the Phrenesis podcast. Today we are joined by special guest Aaron Cummings, uh, and we are reading through Benjamin Fondaine's essay, Man Before History, or The Sound and the Fury. So Aaron, would you like to briefly give, give an introduction to yourself and also uh, tell us why, why you chose uh, this essay? What was it uh, about this uh, particular Fondaine piece that, that really stood out to you and why, why you wanted to talk about it with us? Fantastic. So my name is Aaron Cummings. I'm a PhD student in history of ideas at the University of Texas at Dallas. And I picked this essay because as a, when he reached out to me after I'd written the essay on Fondan's poetry, I was scrolling through the different phronesis podcasts and listening to some of the common themes. And I noticed a pre-war theme that was going on, Father Benjamin and the, thir- the 1930s and so on, seemed to be playing a very prominent role. And that seemed to me quite... Um, helpful because my own dissertation is on Benjamin Fondan. And so anything I did was going to be involving him because why not, you know, keep your mind on the same thing you're already talking about instead of going off on some rabbit trail that will distract you. And as I was trying to think about what would most fit the previous podcast, I thought, well, you've already talked about the theses on history or on the concept of history that um, Walter Mania being put together um, right before his Know, flight and eventual death. And this is a document that comes from exactly the same period of time. This is May 1939. You know, Europe is on the break is on the brink of war. This was actually from the May, I believe the May um, issue of Cahiers de Sud. Uh, and so at that time, of course, Franco has just defeated the um, his opponents in Spain. So at the time it seemed that fascism was fascism was completely triumphant. And everyone was freaking out about this. And there was actually a large number of German intellectuals fleeing into France, and particularly to Marseille. And here it matters that this essay comes from a magazine that was being printed in Marseille, um, the south of France, Marseille. And so there were a large number of um, refugee scholars and artists who were flooding into the city. And it was in this environment where, of course, Walter Benjamin was also involved. He was also in Marseille. He meets Arendt there. That all this is going on. And so because this seemed to best fit this podcast's overall trajectory, that's the main reason I picked this particular piece. Although there are more reasons I'm going to get into that refer to the, to the piece's merits on its own. But that's the, the first general uh, reason why. It's interesting you mentioned that because I, I, I the fact that we've kind of crystallized around, uh, you know, the sort of Weimar pre-war uh, pieces is, was sort of an accident, um, and I, I would say partly b- b- because it was such a uh, intellectually fruitful era. Um, and we've done uh, two episodes now on Walter Benjamin, who, you know, as as a person, you know, obviously uh, dwarfed by the just tremendous amount of tragedy of the period, 
um, but had such an individually tragic life. And I get the uh, impression from reading a brief uh, biography that Fondon was as well. I was wondering whether uh, you could, before we dive into the piece, just um, you know, uh, explain some of the dominant motifs of his work uh, and maybe a, 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 a quick overview of his life and um, you know, a, eventual death after this piece. Yes. So Benjamin Fondan was actually born in Iași, Romania. That's in northeastern Romania. Um, and he grew up um, in a German-Jewish uh, descended family in that area. And already when he was in high school, he was writing poetry. He was writing for different magazines. He was translating poetry from German and Yiddish uh, into Romanian. And he eventually went to college in, in Bucharest. And he was born in, I should say this right away, he was born in 1898. So if you think about that, by the time World War I hits, uh, he's a young man. Uh, and he ends up being in a situation where he knows his, his father dies young uh, of, of, I think, of typhus. It was typhus. Typhus, I believe, that was brought by World War I soldiers passing through. He has an uncle who commits suicide. And so he's, he's in both a, a traumatic and a creative area. He goes to the oldest university in, in Romania um, and is involved in the avant-garde Romanian scene, which is a very underrated sometimes um, scene because if you think about people like Tristan Zara, um, who are coming to eventually Paris like Fondan does, they are really exporting an awful lot of culture into other countries, especially France, that then becomes much better known. But he's part of this scene. He's the editor of a, of a magazine called Rampa, and he begins a small theater group called um, Insula, which means island. And in this, in this scenario, he's attempting to build a life as a poet. He, he is working, focusing on this so much, in fact, that he actually uh, he fails a grade of school at one point because he's too busy you know, writing poetry. And it becomes clear to him this is not going to work out in Romania. He studies law, actually, in college, um, but he's unable to get his license because um, of anti-Semitism. And there's all kinds of issues with uh, rising anti-Semitism and pogroms, uh, massacres in this part of Europe at the time, Eastern Europe, um, bordering Ukraine, um, Romania, and so on. And finally, in 1923, Fondan gets the idea, I'm going to move to Paris. He'd actually managed to burn some bridges in Romania because he'd written a uh, preface to one of his books, um, collections of essays on French writers in which he had described Romania as a cultural province of France, which didn't go over very well in Romania at a time of you know mass nationalism. This is right after you know Wilson's 14 points and all these Eastern European countries are finally becoming independent for the first time after you know, centuries of either Ottoman or Austrian or Russian oppression. And he is joined in, in Paris by his sister, Lene, and his brother-in-law, Armand, who had been part of his theater group. He has a real hard time of it. Um, he knew French very well from a written point of view, but speaking it and actually writing his own poetry in it was a challenge. So he spends most of the rest of the 20s um, not being particularly active, at least not publicly. He's writing things, but it's kind of a, a, a lacuna in his life. It's also a time of a spiritual crisis for him. And he joins up with the Dadaists and then the, the Surrealists 
this is um, Andre Breton, Paul Edouard, did that time, and he writes some cinepoems. Cinepoems are these totally unfilmable screenplays. They're hilarious to read, actually, because they're just designed to be as absurd as possible. And he already has this absurdist revolt against reason, which is very common at the time. This is Freud. This is, you know, Salvador Dali. And he eventually runs into a problem, a sort of a spiritual crisis, because on the one hand, he has this surrealist, Dadaist point of view, but he also has this uh, Judaic heritage. And somewhat like Walter Benjamin, who writes about surrealism and is also taking, you know, um, theological motifs from Judaism into his, his writings. He begins to try to to, to connect this old, um, we could say, spiritual heritage of his with his with his poetic writings, and in that um, effort, he meets a Russian philosopher named Lev Shestov or Leon Shestov, and as is normally said in French, and he meets it at, he meets them at the home of Jules de Gautier, where Fondan briefly worked as a librarian, um, and they go on a walk. Actually, apparently, Jules de Gautier, Shestov, and um, and uh, Fondan, um, Shestov ends up handing him one of his books, and Shestov writes a letter to him afterwards, and Shestov finally feels like someone actually understood me for once. And the two strike up a, a friendship, which is odd because Shestov was very old, and he had fled from Russia after the, the Bolshevik Revolution, and Fondan is quite young, in his 20s. But he basically, Shestov has a anti-rationalist, I'm going to clarify that term later, an anti-rationalist response to modernity that Fondan finds helpful because if you think of surrealism as irrationalism, just a revolt against reason with no rhyme or reason behind it, anti-rationalism is more like setting bounds to reason to make room for other things like, for example, faith. And over the the decades of of the 20s and throughout the 30s, Fondan is basically deepening his philosophical approach. At the same time, he's carrying on his philosophical products pro- projects. In 1929, um, he meets uh, Victoria Ocampo, the same Victoria Ocampo who is friends with Jorge Luis Borges in, from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and she actually invites him to go to Argentina. He ends up showing some um, surrealist film films, like for example, uh, Un Andalou from um or entreat some of those famous famous uh, you know the, the eye getting sliced open and things from the surrealist films of that era and they carry on those friendships um and with ocampo with shestov and it sort of shows you this divided trajectory in his life on the one hand he's he's a poet on the other hand he's, he's becoming a philosopher more and more and more in the night in the 1930s he starts to get his first big breaks he writes a, a book called Rimbo the Voyou, uh, basically Rimbo the Rascal or Rimbo the, the Hooligan, you know, uh, Arthur Rimbo, the famous um, uh, French poet from the previous century. This is a success. People will begin to reach out to him for, to write in their magazines, like Cahiers de Sud. He writes some more philosophical, philosophical um, work, like um, the, the Unhappy Consciousness, a Conscience Malheureuse, which is, of course, referring to Hegel. It's also referring to Jean Wall's work of a similar title, the, the French existentialist philosopher Jean Wall. He writes a fake treatise of aesthetics, uh, which is subtitled The Crisis of Reality, uh, which kind of shows you where he's, his thoughts going in, in these years. And um, he also is writing poetry. He writes Ulysses, he writes Titanic. Um, and it, so by the time 
he comes it comes to this point where he's writing this particular essay in 1939 he's pretty well known in france even though he's he's subsequently forgotten because um the assistants who come after the war sartre you know camus uh, beauvoir and so by the time he writes this essay he's actually asked to put the conclusion or a summary to a series of articles that were written at this time so as i was saying earlier this is 1939, spring, refugees pouring into Marseille. And what happens is one of these refugees, the name is Noth, I forget the first name, but the last name is Noth, N-O-T-H, had basically given a sp- speech on the crisis of civilization. Uh, you might think of it in terms like Edmund Husserl's you know, The Crisis of the European Sciences at the same period of time. And Fondant, oh, not Fondant, but Jean Ballard, who is the editor of, of Caille of the Sud, Ask a number of writers to respond. And one who does this uh, originally is named Jacques, um, Jacques, I forget his last name. I want to say Jacques Benet. Jacques Benet ends up writing a interesting article. It's very, very, we could say, traditional Catholic, basically blaming, you know, Nietzsche, you know, everything's Nietzsche's fault. Um, now there's no morals and everything's going, you know, to hell in a handbasket. And so he then asked Jean Ballard asked other writers to respond, maybe deepen or challenge this particular perspective. And Fondant is given the privilege of, re- of responding last because he's been writing for this magazine for a long time. He has a column called Living Philosophy, La Philosophie Vivant. But that's not what Fondant does at all. Fondant writes, goes off, off on his own tangent, which is what we have here we're talking about today. I just wanted to pause there because I, I was talking for a bit. I'll get to Fondan's death here in a minute, but I wanted to see if there were any questions on oh. that first part. No, I think that th- that leads really well into the essay. So if I, let's, uh, let's briefly touch on his death and then dive in. Fantastic. So what ends up happening, and this actually relates to the, again, the circumstances of this essay, Jacques um, Benet is a future resistant. He will fight in the resistance. And both he and Fondan will soon be called up to the French army. They serve in the army. Um, Fondant is captured twice, actually, because he got captured once. He um, escapes, and just a few days later, the France surrenders, he gets captured again. Uh, very bad luck. By all accounts, he actually performed uh, with, with considerable hero- heroism, um, even though he was an older man by that point. Not really old, but he was, you know, um, by that point, he would have been in his, you know, uh, 40s, right? So at that point, he goes and he's hiding out in Paris because he's a Jew. and Paris is under you know, German occupation. Yeah, initially, Fondan is given, is classified not as a Jew because he's married to Genevieve Tissier, who was a French Catholic. But after 1943, um, you know, the Germans cracked down. He was classified as a Jew again. And he is eventually arrested uh, in early 1944, 19, March 1944, actually by French police, unfortunately. And he's taken to the police station. His friends try to get him out. He has friends like um, Emile Joran, the famous Romanian writer who's also in France, um, um, Jean Paulan, um, um, Stefan Lupashko, who's a Romanian French logician philosopher. And they try to petition the Germans to let Fondant out because at the time, um, Romania is still a German ally. It will switch a few months later, but you know, Romania switches sides during the war. So in spring of March 1944, Romania is still a German ally, and they, they think maybe we can get him out on that basis. But the Germans say we can't do anything about it. You know, the French are the ones who arrested him. Um, and so they go to talk to the French, and they're like, sure, we can let um, Fondant out. 
but we can't do anything for his sister, who'd also been arrested. They'd been at home together. And Fondan's wife had been out. And Fondan won't leave without his sister. Um, she's followed him all the way from, Roma- from Romania. Her husband had died, I should mention this, of tuberculosis. And so Fondan felt some sense of responsibility toward her. And th- there was nothing they could do. Eventually, they weren't able to get um, his sister and him out at the same time. There were all kinds of schemes that had been hatched during the preceding years to get Fondan out. They tried to get him to Argentina, to New York, but none of, th- none of this had worked out. And so he gets deported to Auschwitz. So does his sister, Lean. They both die. We don't know exactly how Lean died, but we know from um, witnesses in the camps that Fondan died in early October, the second or the third. Um, he, he was weirdly enough in a hospital there with an old high school friend from Romania, where they re- randomly ended up within the same, you know, the same camp. And after that, after his death, um, his friends try to try try to remember him. There's an entire essay on him, or an entire section on him in the, in the Calle de Sud called Fondan Parminu or Fondan Among Us. There's also, um, he's in, there's a, a famous collection called Five Assassinated or Five Murdered Poets uh, on poets who did not survive the occupation. He's one of them. And there are, some of his writings get published after his death, including the one I'm dissertating on, <laughs> um, Baudelaire and the Experience of the Abyss. And, but unfortunately at this time, um, or for his legacy at least, this is the time when um, Camus, Sartre, de Beauvoir are, are, are rock stars you know, all around the world. And the sort of older way of existentialism that was more absurdist or religious, Shestov, um, Fondan, you can compare it a little bit maybe to like George Bataille in that direction, um, or, or uh, Maurice Balanchot, if that makes sense. It kind of gets a little bit more pushed off to the side, and he's forgotten until really around the 1980s when he gets taken up again by um, people like, um, I'm not sure if they were doing it in the 1980s, but current scholars on him include like Olivier Salazar-Ferre, um, Monique Joutrin, um, uh, um, Anna, Anna Butcher, Lutescu, some others who have really focused on his work over the last 20, 30 years. And he's kind of seeing a renaissance in part because of people like Gilles Deleuze, who drew pretty heavily actually on Lev Shestov, who was, Fondan's mentor. So people are, are gradually realizing that in a sense, some of his themes are more contemporary, more postmodern, if you will, um, than the structuralist or phenomenological wave from say 1945 to 1980 ish, if that makes sense. Yeah, that that um th- then that's really helpful because I this might be the the first um the first recording we've done where um the uh, the subject won't be immediately recognizable to a lot of uh, I- at least uh, Anglo listeners. Um, and because, I, I mean, I, I know for my part, uh, I was unfamiliar with Fondan un- until uh, we started working together on your piece. Um, and this is a, a <laughs> really striking uh, essay, but I guess the the question that or what he's going to explain to us um, is uh, why fascism is not irrational, why it can't be combated by reason. Um, but he starts off uh, with a modified quote from Andre Gide, uh, and the, the, the Gide quote is life. Uh, I'm just going to pull it up so I don't butcher it. Uh, it's no laughing matter to play in a world where everybody cheats. 
and Fondan includes, uh, or he, he appends uh, uh, his own um, few words to that so that it reads, it's no laughing matter to play in a world where everyone cheats, including me. Uh, can you explain why he starts the piece with that? What uh, it, 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 it doesn't seem obvious to me based on where he goes after that. Exactly. So that's one of the things that comes from the fact that this is a response piece in this Kaidesu magazine. And so the original piece um, by Jacques Venet that had included that quote, which actually is misquoted from, from Gide. It's actually um, Emmanuel Fai, but Gide quotes Emmanuel Fai, and it gets into it. But Fandan didn't know that. He just knew it was quoted by Gide. So he's, he's basically responding, to, trying to find his segue, if you will, um, from the previous uh, submissions to the, to, to the magazine. And that's why it kind of comes with that different approach. But it's not entirely a bad one because Fondan and his mentor, Lev Shastov, their entire approach is based on the idea that, in a sense, humans are always trying to deceive themselves. We're always trying to find masks to put over uh, reality because from their point of view, there are basically two approaches up till that point that have been tried to, to basically make sense of reality. And neither, neither of them have really worked. And one of these is religion and one of the, or myth as they'll call it. And the other one of these is logic. And so way back in Fondan's fake treatise of aesthetics, um, I'll, I'll mention this because this is kind of relates to the article I, I sent to you guys earlier. There had been an attack made by Roger Kawa and um, Gaston Derrick, um, writers active at the time in the same magazine, on can art and metaphysics, metaphysics and religion have anything to say to our present moment? You know, it's already the 30s, things are going down. And their thought is that all these things are really just fake windows painted on reality. They're, they're not really real. So already, you already have, you have this idea of deceit, of fakery. And that connects to this idea of fate cards, which I think why Fondan picked that particular citation out of all the things that Benet had said was everyone could agree. And if you go back to Benet's statement, Benet is, is basically saying we're, we're in a mess. Benet finishes his essay with a quotation from the Genesis account of the flood. Okay, <laughs> the flood's coming. Everything is going you know, to end very badly. And so they could all agree that no one really knows what's going on. If you think about France at the time, there had been this wave of support for Marxism. Then they find out, okay, Stalin's doing kangaroo trials in Moscow. This is maybe not good. Ajit uh, himself has, has first championed Marxism. Then written his famous book, Return from the USSR, in which actually maybe that was not such a good idea. So that's why he, he takes up this idea of fate cards. Because what everyone can agree on is the, the, the deck we've been played, the way we're looking at reality, is fundamentally deceptive. But the question was why, if that makes sense. That, just that first paragraph is really fascinating following uh, from that quote. The, the final sentence in the paragraph, we understand nothing of history if we do not start from the fact that error has always been regarded as a sickness of virtue, uh, really stood out to me. And it, This whole essay, I think, has been one of the most... Uh, discomforting, frustrating, enthralling, and otherwise um, fascinating things I, I've read in a, in a long time, uh, often very, 
very discomforting throughout. But um, I, I, yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I just really love the way the way this uh, started out. No, I, I think you're totally right. And to read that again, he says, um, we understand nothing of history if we do not start from the fact that error has always been regarded as a sickness or virtue. It reminds me, you know, of Fondan, of, 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 of Walter Benjamin talking about, you know, this understanding of uh, of history. We were surprised by the, the, the tragedies of the 20th century. Our understanding of history is not philosophical, right? Uh, and so what he's essentially coming at is he's, he's attacking, as we'll attack later on, one of the biggest things that he's attempting to do, he and Shestov, and this is why they're so frustrating. I think I think you're picking at something that's, that frustrates everybody about Fondan. He fits in, in none of our categories, including mine. I should say this. I, I'm fascinated with Fondan, but I don't necessarily agree with everything he says, obviously. Um, it, which is that he is consistently both uh, religious and not. Um, both both Shestov and he, he were always trying to create room for faith. But as Choran said, his friend Choran, the Romanian writer, he had a horror of conclusions. <laughs> he had a horror of actually arriving on something that he would be settled on. So a lot of this essay is him arguing against any theodicy, whether the religious theodicy that Jacques Benet was promoting in his initial you know, traditional Catholic, return to Catholic values. That's why later on he'll say return to the Middle Ages. That's what you know, uh, Benet is, is arguing for. A little bit, not exactly, but sort of. Um, and, and, but on their hand, this sort of new theodicy that comes with Hegel, which is, remember, this is the 30s, so Quayre and Quayev are giving their, their famous talks, you know, in in in, um, in Paris at this time, basically promoting you know the end of history. You know it's gone to be famous by Fukuyama and so on, um, misinterpreted in both of their cases. Um, but the the one of the things that they're constantly fighting against are are, are the all these ide- ideologies, Marxism as well as democratic progress, both are trying to become a secular theodicy, um, where don't worry, yeah, a lot of people died for insert ideology here but in the end it's going to be okay because the solution will be whatever the utopia at the end of that is right and so in in that particular view then error is a sickness of virtue um virtue is fine but um it's got a little bit sick somehow you know augustine and so on you know not really granting reality to, to evil just saying that, or, or Tolkien, you know, the, the elves have been ter- twisted into or, into orcs or whatever. Again, that same idea pops up throughout our culture, and Fulnan and and Shestov are forever arguing that no, that actually fundamentally in the nature of reality as it is after the fall, and they both play place a great emphasis on the fall, um, as interpreted really by by Kierkegaard in um, uh, the concept of anxiety. Basically, at the root of our knowledge is some damage to our thought such that we can't even understand virtue, if that makes sense. And then to go back to the to the Jeed phrase, uh, the, the quote he, he, he inserts, um, there's something that – and, you know, the quote is that everyone, uh, everyone cheats um, – <clears throat> But, you know, when I read that, it's clearly that, like, the, the philosophers here unto now, um, you know, sort of I- I- exempt themselves from their own, right? Um, but, but there are some who, who don't. Uh, and, um, and that, I don't know if it's the distance of irony or, or something like that, but that, 
the people that Fondan identifies as being able to uh, kind of penetrate to the heart of things um, are Shakespeare and Dostoevsky, uh, especially, and Shakespeare, um, uh, especially in uh, Macbeth, uh, where the subtitle of this essay, or Sound and Fury, comes from, um, and uh to contextualize that from the play, Macbeth has just found out that his wife has, has killed herself uh, and gives this really sort of nihilistic monologue um, about the meaninglessness uh, of life, basically. That's a tale told by... Right, right. It's a tale told by idiots signifying nothing, um, full, of sound, full of sound and fury signifying nothing, which is also funny because this was in the news lately because Ted Cruz quoted it. Um, and, uh, some journalists thought they would dunk on him by saying, no, no, it was Faulkner, uh, when it wasn't. So this is our, this is our, uh, the the current relevance of this anyway. Right. He says Faulkner so helpfully reminded us, uh, of this. Um, why is it that, uh, you know, that, that novelists, you know, who aren't speaking through their own voices is, 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 I think part of it. Uh, why are they able to capture this aspect of reality when the philosophers are not? Yes, so that's a great question. And there's sort of two parts to this. Um, one is Fondan has this, has this really, he never quite figures it out, I don't think. He will sometimes claim that philosophers and novelists or philosophers and poets are opposed, the two different forms of knowing. At other times, he will strenuously object to this and claim that actually you can't, that, that a real philosopher, a real novelist or poet has a philosophy and, and vice versa. So there's a little bit of um, a, a ambiguity here. So, and, and the reason why I say that is I want to present some, both some of the thinkers and some of the poets that he identifies with. I'll start, I'll actually start with the philosophers. So he has a very interesting interpretation of Nietzsche, uh, Dostoevsky, uh, well, I, you can call Dostoevsky if you want to call Dostoevsky a, a philosopher as well as a novelist. And Kierkegaard. And what he wants to claim, and he's following actually Karl Jaspers, and as well as Les, always, he's always following Lev Shestov, but um, also he's basically his idol in some senses, but also Karl Jaspers, who just, in one of his essays, I forget which one, he, he says we can't really rely on people like Nietzsche and Dostoevsky and Kierkegaard because they're exceptions. They're just kind of weird. Like you watch them, okay, yeah, but let's go on with life you know, and leave these exceptions along. And Fondant's going to say no because. These are, are people who are actually realizing they're playing with loaded dice, with fake cards. So when they come to you and, and give some pronouncement philosophically or artistically, they are not the ones who are saying to your, 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 your response, what, what makes them different? They're the ones who are actually saying, look, I'm playing with trick, with trick cards. You know, that's why he quotes um, the Dostoevsky from Notes from Underground to the effect that, you know, how can you how can you be conscious and not hate yourself? I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he's arguing. And again, he'll he'll say that he's he's reading Nietzsche. There's lots of ways to read Nietzsche, right? When you, but he doesn't take him seriously as Superman and all that. Instead, he's he's saying this is someone who is sick, uh, who realizes I don't have a very good life ahead of me in terms of of um, my physical capacity. So he's trying to develop some of those masks. And he reads Nietzsche as not being right, but as being extremely revealing. Later on in the same essay, he talks about Amor Fati, right? He says that's one possible way of reading this, but it doesn't work out. 
and and later on in one of his in one of his books not this one he argues that you know nietzsche um has that famous phrase you know life is not an argument and he says actually nietzsche finds out that life is an argument and a really good one <laughs> because you know nietzsche gets you know we know what happened to nietzsche and so basically he takes these thinkers as not necessarily being right against the others but as having demonstrated in their own biographies the dynamic at play and that's one other thing you'll find in fondan throughout and this is what again why he's frustrating he, he is forever taking people's arguments and again like walter benjamin his, I, quote, I, I'm, I'm ambushing people and relieving them of their, relieving them of their citations he's forever taking a quote and and making it mean what he thinks the author really meant if the author had been really honest with himself if that makes sense. So that's why he actually finds these novelists as being quote unquote right, not because he actually thinks they're right. He just thinks they're the ones who realized, yeah, I'm really messed up, if that makes sense. And therefore, and, I'm playing with loaded, loaded dice or trick cards. And, and in, in each of their own ways, the three of, the three of them that you mentioned, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard are um, writing at the end of and responding to what is the, it's the century of Hegel, um, who's kind of kind of the uh, you know maybe after Spinoza or something like the most extreme rationalist ever to um, y- you know ever ever to do ever to philosophize, uh, but b- right <laughs> and 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 we and we can see why. Uh, but the, what what they are what they're doing um, is. Uh, and especially after after Hegel, I think he makes a big deal of the doppelschatz in uh, uh, the preface of the philosophy of right. The the rational is actual, and the a- uh, actual is rational. Um, that that gives that gives rise to a uh, something uniquely modern, um, which is I'm going to call it making theodicy. Uh, um, theodicy has to be made, but he doesn't go right there. Um, he he first talks about uh, what at least non-modern, the ancients. Um, he talks about the great religious traditions, um, all saw, um, which is escape into the noose or the mind or something. Um, I don't have a good sense of what he thinks of that. Um, it could, could, could you perhaps uh, help us with that part? So he, he basically looks on Spinoza and Hegel as being the heirs of Aristotle and, and Plato, and especially, especially Plato. Well, he 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 does he he does he picks on Aristotle and Plato for two different things. He he has a quarrel with with Aristotle's logic, especially especially the idea of the law of non contradiction. Um, you know, uh, one thing cannot contradict another thing in in the same time in the same respect. And with Plato, with his idea of the doctrine of, of ideals, the ideas, the forms, the idos, and so on. And he he sees Hegel as the apotheosis of both these things at the same time because Hegel has this, this logic, this, the, the dialectic logic is very different, but also uh, it's idealism. Right? <laughs> what else do you want to say, right? So um, he, he basically, in one of his other books, his book on Baudelaire, he quotes the part, the Platonic dialogue, the Parmenides, which is the fun dialogue because it's where it's the one where they take Socrates out the woodshed, right? Or this is the one where Socrates isn't isn't the one asking the questions, where he's the one getting um, beat up on, and so that dialogue begins with. Parmenides and, and Zeno are there with young Socrates, and Zeno's given one of his famous paradoxes. 
and how things cannot be alike and unlike at the same time, blah, blah, blah. And Socrates thinks he's going to take him down. He goes after Zeno, and he they do a, do a judo move. He ends up flat on his face. I'm summarizing horribly, but what ends up happening is he, Parmenides starts pushing him on, okay, um, so if justice and good are ideas, okay, yeah, those are. Okay, what about, you know, fire and water? Okay, but what about mud and hair and dirt? Uh, and, and, and Socrates, you know, in Plato's reading responds, or I said Plato's writing responds, okay, I'm afraid if I do that, I'm going to fall into this abyss of nothingness or this abyss of silliness or abyss of foolishness. And that's actually the key that, that Fondan uses to his reading of the, the abyss in Pascal and Nietzsche and Baudelaire, which is in his book on Baudelaire. Now, why do I, why do I say all that? Well, the reason why he's attempting to tackle Spinoza uh, and, and, um, and Hegel through the ancients is he's following a, a reading, again, of Lev Shestov, his mentor slash idol, who argued that you can read the ancients as a progress or not progress, he hated progress, but as a continuation from the you know, pre-Socratics with all their contradiction, uh, Heraclitus' flux and so on, versus Parmenides one. And then here comes along Plato, he's gonna, he's gonna unify the Heraclitus and Heraclitian flux and the Platonic ideals uh, in, in, by, by here, here's the singular forms and the many of the particulars and so on. And that ends up not working out for the reasons that are outlined in Parmenides, um, precisely, which is why he picks on that dialogue. He claims that, Fonan claims that really this is a problem in, in Plato, that you really can't get past the Parmenides in terms of the doctrine of the ideals. And so Shestov has an interesting interpretation of the Neoplatonist, especially Plotinus, whereby in the Aeneids, which is why they quote the Aeneids in this particular book, and of course the noose is the mind, um, that finally they realize that we cannot subordinate everything to reason. There must be philosophy ultimately is the search for the most important. And so then if you think of the ancient world collapsing, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, you know, the Christian Middle Ages and so on, basically Shostov and Fonan are reading the modern philosophical trajectory from Descartes to their day, the existentialists, as a as a recapitulation of the ancient journey from Aristotelian logic, Platonic logic, to finally realizing actually maybe this is all work out in the Neoplatonist leading up to you know, Augustine, if that makes sense. So he he's trying to go back and draw on the first time logic didn't quite work out, and say it's happening all over again, if that makes sense. Especially because I should mention this, you know, how does the ancient philosophy end? You know, with Augustine's attempt to reconcile Platonism and Christianity and the, the, the theodicies of, of sorts that, that Augustine comes up with, with this sort of derealizing evil as a, a shadow of good, if that makes sense. And part of, uh, for me, what helped all, all this uh, propel so quickly throughout the, the essay is there is this strong feeling of gravity to, to these rather abstract um, debates or, or concerns. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, few lines. I mean, just about every line in this uh, is incredible, uh, but but uh, really focused on the the concept of, of the self exception uh, of of some of these philosophers. He, he writes, 
It is indeed no laughing matter to play a game where everyone cheats, for we cannot decide who among millions of people, each of whom provides the one and only solution, is right except by violence and force. It is no laughing matter to know that the modest project of reform we offer the world will either remain an obscure notebook or triumph one day and cost the human race thousands of dead and defeated individuals. But what is even less a laughing matter is the thought that the only way to avoid cheating at the game is to pass oneself off as irresponsible. And that um, is a wonderfully uh, cutting criticism, I, I, I think, of a, a lot of philosophers. And, and uh, you were d- discussing a little previously about, about sort of a sense of utopianism. And this is a very clear-sighted um, view of, of just the costs that any sort of uh, utopianism incurs, like very real uh, destruction and violence, which, which is frightening. Uh, and a little bit later, he, he moves on um, after the bit you were discussing with Plato. He says that the formidable, formidable enemies of Plato and of the noose are Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, those who dare to think outside of the constraints of society, who dare to assert that everyone cheats, themselves included. For all intents and purposes, the philosopher, the politician, the leader, and the priest can only impose their truth by postulating that they are the only honest people in a world where everyone cheats. And and shortly thereafter, everyone is right or everyone is wrong, and then the noose would see it Sorry, I should have done. Uh, and right after, because if there's no one who does not cheat, including the philosopher, or if on the contrary, everyone is honest, including the philosopher, the pitfall is the same. Everyone is right or everyone is wrong. And then the noose would see itself forced to admit publicly that life is a tale told by an idiot. Um, so that Hamlet framing really runs deep through throughout all of this. Um and this is not a very optimistic account of, of philosophy. So there's a there, there's an aspect of this where, you know, uh, reason kind of admits of no <clears throat> departures. Um, he uses uh, the idea, uh, capital I, in the way that Hegel does, uh, which which Hegel uses to mean a concept and its actualization so that that it needs to be brought into into being for it to be real. Um, I get, what is it about uh, what what is it about reason, especially modern reason? Because this uh, this kind of pre-modern from say uh, Plato up to before Descartes, um, you know, he doesn't he doesn't he sees this impulse to kind of flee into the mind, um, but there's not there's not also so much the impulse to remake the world. Yes. Um, he says here, what? This is fi- we're trying to transform the world finally. You know, the, the famous quote from Marx about not trying to understand the world, but change it, right? Right, right, right. And, and that there's something unique, uniquely modern about that, um, <clears throat> which, which implies two things, uh, both of which I was hoping you'd touch on. Um, one is that it eliminates the possibility of deliberation about these things. Um, it, 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 it's categorical, so you can't... You can't um, you know, converse and come to any kind of consensus um, about it. Uh, and then the other is that it needs, 
it needs to be actualized. Um, what changed to make those things true? Why, why can there be no deliber deliberation about it? Um, and I mean, I understand the historical circumstances. The liberation had broken down, but he's raising this to the, you know, to the to a level of abstraction that uh, would seem to apply to beyond just 1939. And and why um, why the demand for uh, actualization or for um, you know the realization of the idea? Yeah. So Hugh, again, Hegel is at the time, triumphant in 1930s France, especially in the sort of Marxist um, interpretation of, of Hegel, um, so Fondad's argument is something along the lines of, if you take any dialectic and put it into history, Hegel's famous philosophy of history, then, okay, you have this concept and it gets sublated and it turns into the next... Those are people he's trying to argue, and you, you mentioned that you know it's always very concrete, always very direct. There's a gravity to it, and there's a gravity to it because it's never just the abstract concept. He's always thinking, how does this concept relate to the person? And so the reason that he that he thinks that the modern world has really changed, to get to your point, had to do with art, and this is why you, you quoted earlier that. Um, it's only the frivolous who can deal with this, not the philosopher. And the reason why he thinks this is he's going all the way back to the times of ancient myth. And he's including here the Bible. Um, and he's arguing that at a time when um, you could claim that poetry, the art, when you, when you drew a picture of a, of a saint or something that was really showing you the saint, um, if you wrote one of the Psalms that was really relating to, to reality, to God in some sense that uh, you're, there's a real concreteness to this. You know, he, he, he writes a lot about the Psalms. Some of his later poetry evokes the Psalms, and there's this direct um, human-God connection. Now, he has this weird kind of faith where he's not really sure if God exists, but if he does, like, I'm still crying out anyway, if that makes sense. Um, so, and that the cry is, is a big idea to him, that even a shout or a scream, because it's very real. It subverts logic, because... I'm alive. <laughs> what are you going to do about it, if that makes sense? Um, and so in that context, Hegel, he quotes this throughout his writings, Hegel is basically saying, okay, the art is the visual manifestation or the visual representation of the idea. So in that particular context, the, the real actual person gets turned into food, fodder for the idea, but so does art. So for Fondan, saving art, saving poetry, and saving the indi individual human being are two parts of the same project. Because if you think about in, in Hegel, there's the famous end of art, end of religion, his, end of history, right? Now, these all get misinterpreted as thinking that they just ended, and that's not really what Hegel says, right? But, but still, to a certain point, it is a sacrifice of art, history, and religion to the idea. And in 30s, or any view of progress, the idea is the utopia you mentioned earlier, right? Which is achieved at some cost of blood. So in order to extricate humanity from this logic that takes art and makes it be a tool of revolution, remember that there's a 1935 meeting of the artists in Paris, the Congress of Writers, 
how are we going to respond to the revolution, right? Yeah. How are we? How so? How can I, as an artist, avoid getting pulled into into one or the other side of this utopian project that will end in blood, either Marxism or fascism? That's all. That's, it, it, the art and the, the art and the person become the same question. So, in order to throw a a, a wrench in the works of the dialectic, becomes both the way to save art, his poetry, and to save the humans who will be killed if either utopian project is attempted to be realized, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if I answered answer the question. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, <clears throat> I mean, I couldn't help but um, uh, place Fondan um, alongside some others of his, maybe not quite contemporaries, and he actually seems uh, precocious um, in this, um, but identifying a sort of what later gets called dialectic of enlightenment, right? Um, where, where, uh, right, right. That's, uh, so that's what Adorno and Horkheimer call it. But, um, Heidegger and his writings on technology talk about, talks about this a little. Um, and I just want to read part of, a, um, a part of a, a quote here that, um, you know, kind of drives at, um, what Fondant sees as, you know what the arc of modernity will look like and where where it, it leaves him at the time of this writing um and then i think we can talk about what um we've talked a lot about the history of philosophy um and kind of sidestepped the big thing that happens part of it um uh you know which is the the incarnation and the crucifixion and stuff which he makes uh um which he sees as very important but um so he says, if the final result of four centuries of humanism and the apotheosis of science has on, been only a return of the worst horrors, uh, it's certainly not the fault of the noble, noble counter-humanism, uh, and that's Nietzsche and company. Uh, the fault, rather, lies perhaps with humanism itself, which was too lacking in pessimism, which staked too much on the separate and divine intellect and neglected more than it ought to have real man whom we had treated as an angel only to finally reduce him to a level lower than the beasts. Um, I won't say that a far-sighted humanism uh, would have saved us from wars, revolutions, and cataclysms. Those have always happened. Uh, but it would have saved us from wars on a national scale, revolutions on a world scale, from mechanized barbarism, from gas and germ warfare, and from racism. A humanism that had not overestimated reason would certainly not have put all of science's trump cards in the hands of those to whom today we deny the gift of reason itself. And he's talking about the Nazis there. Um, again, what we mentioned at the beginning, um, uh, uh, I, I, I assume Benet says this in his piece, that the, the, you know, the Nazis are brute, they're irrational. Um, and he's saying, no, this is, this is the height of reason. This is the height of actualizing the idea. And look, we placed them, um, we placed all the horrors of technology um, in their hands. But I don't want to lump him together too much, um, uh, you know, with these others. Um, so I was, you know, wondering if we could quickly talk about, you know, how he thinks of uh, humanism and science, and um, you know, these things that are kind of progressing along with modern philosophy. But uh, at the level of abstraction, we've been talking about it. Um, we haven't really touched on those things, especially. So basically, what is thinking about you know science, technology. Um, he, he has an interesting thought about this, which is he's absolutely pro-science in the sense that he's not this obscurantist, reactionary, science is bad type. 
but he sees any type of let me, let me back up for a minute I don't want to go, go, go again back into the history of philosophy too much, but if we think about the famous syllogism, you know, Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, therefore Socrates is mortal. He sees that same syllogism lying behind science and technology. So that science is really useful for certain ends if you have an end in mind uh, and, and limit it to that end. He, he'll, he'll quote Kant and say the critique of reason, okay, we well, should critique reason. Um, but he then says, what happens is we take reason, we've critiqued it, and we found out that when we critique reason, it becomes very powerful. It can do a lot of things. Uh, and so then we use it. And we take out what really matters in life because we've put, out that, put that out outside the parameters of what we're allowed to talk about. Okay, the same thing happens, he says, with science. Science is amazing. Um, science has medical benefits. Science keep, can keep us alive. But... If we, just, if, we, if we think, oh, science can fix everything, then again, we're, we're, we're going to become blind to everything outside what science can do. And we'll hand science to anybody, totally trusting that science won't turn on us. And so that's why he says in this particular essay, we've, we've, we've handed science over to the Nazis. And because we were so confident that we had circumscribed the limits of what can be thought about within what, within reason, within science, positivism, if you will, scientism, that, that because we've, by definition, limited knowledge to science, that means we've gotten rid of the spiritual, the existential parts of humanity, and having to find those out of existence, as Heidegger somewhat similarly argues, we then find that technology turns on us, and we have nothing left to fight it with, because we've de we defined all of our humanist defenses out of existence. That's that's uh, that's really helpful way of um, helpful way of putting it. And I mean, it's interesting that uh, in a way, the you know um, Kant's project or part of his project, which was large, uh, you know, was to uh, was to d define the limits of uh, what what reason could accomplish to to subject it to a, a critique. Um, but he, uh, I guess, in doing so, um, made everything else inaccessible to humans, kind of. And I think of um, uh, Wittgenstein does something similar in the Tractatus. So this is, uh, you know, this is not limited to one person. This is a, a, a thread um, that runs through. But um, I, I, and I don't know whether he sees a place for return, but... <laughs> um, Fondon certainly in this piece then turns to religion or spirituality. And I know the way he introduces it really bothered Brad. Um, so Brad, would you like to, would you like to explain, uh, he, he quotes, uh, or I guess, um, uh, paraphrases Goebbels, um, but, but uses it to lead his way into a discursion on religion. Easily the most disturbing passage in this essay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, and there there are plenty of uh, disturbing uh, passages in this, and, and we've alighted over a couple great images. Uh, uh, readers, listeners should definitely become readers of this. Uh, the the discussion of turtles uh, earlier, tortoises rather, and such uh, is worth very worthwhile. Uh, but at this point, um, he brings in this example of. Uh, 
Goebbels uh, comparing, well, he, he quotes, how did Planeta die? Shouting, Heil Hitler and long live Germany. How did Christ die on the cross sniveling? Trying to set up this dichotomy of Planeta, uh, his na- first name is escaping me, but that Otto, the, the assassin of Engelbert uh, Dolfus, uh, having died for a, a cause, having died for an ideal, that being uh, the ideal of, of a Nazi Germany. Uh, whereas uh, Christ Christ died uh, in Garibald's eyes, um, and the the word sniveling is um, is I, I I don't know how to really hard hitting one uh, here, and I I can't do do justice to the this passage. Uh, as a whole, listeners are really going to have to just read it, and, it, and it's worthwhile. Uh, but it comes to the point where um, Fandon um, finds hope isn't quite the right word, but a, a sincerity, a, a, a honesty, Finally, someone not cheating, uh, cheating at the game in the complete uh, abandonment of dying, uh, crying out, Father, Father, why, why have you forsaken me? Um, and that leads into this sad, but somewhat reassuring, just odd take uh, of Fondon's uh, on the beauty and power, uh, oddly, of total powerlessness, uh, the, the heroism of being resigned to pain without a mask, uh, to history without any sense of reason or progress within it, just where Goebbels saw, saw cowardice um, and lack of bravery Fondon sees a triumphant powerlessness. Um, he says, uh, powerless, triumphant, and stronger than all the powers of the world and of reason. Um, and it, that, that's a really beautiful uh, couple of paragraphs throughout here. Absolutely. Um, and it, it really resonates with, with one of the things that's, that's really beautiful about um, Fondan's work, and I can't, I can't re- recommend strongly enough his poem, The Exodus, um, which has been translated into English, um, where he gets into a, a kind of psalmistic uh, mood. Fondan is taking this, this analogy. He started off by saying, okay, we're all playing with trick cards. The philosophers all claim, I've got my cards in order. You're wrong. No one wants to admit that all of our cards are tricked, are, are faked, are, are, our dice is all loaded. And so he's already pointed to Nietzsche, um, Dostoevsky, um, but also to all their limitations. He never sides with any of these philosophers. He simply says they show our, our, our condition. They take the mask off, right? And he takes Christ um, and uses his cry on the cross as being 
the 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 most real moment. Remember I, earlier I mentioned art, philosophy, and religion, where all those three things come to the really real. And he uses this phrase in his in his philosophy a lot: the really real, um, because there's no mass there anymore, if that makes sense. And it's it's the most. He, he contrasts the death of Socrates, you know, talking to his friends, you know, co confident, reason will, will, will solve this, to Christ. And that's why you mentioned earlier, it's the most disturbing because he just leaves you there. <laughs> um, you, you don't really know how to feel about it. And he leaves you kind of wallowing in that sense of what, you know, my dissertation is on his Baudelaire and of course Baudelaire plagiarizes Poe. What does Poe do? He gives you this mood and leaves you in it. Marinate in that for a little bit. And Fondan does the same thing, but with the passion of Christ, which he has no solution for it. And throughout his works, he never has solutions. He's great for questions. He's not good for answers. Um, but he just leaves you with that image of, okay, contrast Socrates. I got all figured out. You know, Socrates says, I don't know where I'm going exactly, but he, still, he's there developing these beautiful dialogues that are very confident with Christ and you just left with that very raw feeling of pain, that very raw feeling of, I can't prove it logically in aesthetics and in ethics that this is the philosophy that works, but just feel it for a moment and tell me that's not the really real. I dare you. That's basically his, his move. You're absolutely right about that. Leaving this... I since reading it, I have just felt like I've been marinating in it. I, I can't think of another word. It's been a long time. I'm strug struggling to think of any other examples uh, where I have read an essay that has provoked such an emotional response uh, in me as well as an intellectual one. But, but the This is a very sensual essay. I, I, I was squirming uh, reading parts. I, he, he very much had a poetic skill for, for evoking feeling in, in these words. And that the tension of, of sort of dropping off uh, with that image on the cross is, is a, a powerful one in this. It, it really is. Sorry, well, go ahead. I was, I remarked to Brad after we had, we had finished this, you, you, you mentioned, it, I, reading this, I forget, I forgot, and I knew when I, uh, um, like, you know, I knew when I started it, but forgot by the end that I wasn't reading a Christian thinker, um, especially because of these last few pages. Um, he sounds a lot like Kierkegaard in the um, kind of just like, absurdly throwing yourself into God. Um, there's no reason for it. Um, you can't give a reason for it. Um, but that, that, that leap as it were, uh, is sort of the leap you have to make. Um, and you know, I, I, I wonder what hope, um, there is here because of course he says, um, you know, this is what I feel like is the right response, but I can't bring myself to do it. Right. Um, he's like, I, I'm looking for, I'll, I'll just, I'll just read this so I don't uh, give a terrible paraphrase of it. Um, 
Just like you, dear reader, I cling desperately to the intelligibility of history. Just like you, I hope, uh, even though I have my doubts, just like you, I dream of useful reforms of great measures to be put into effect. Um, and of course, also, he says, I, I'm not saying that this doesn't mean we have to fight the Nazis. Uh, he's saying we, we first have to do that before anything. Um, but did. I do get this. He did. Right. He was actually um, a soldier you know, in the fight. Right. Right. This, the, and that, that's actually very helpful because it sounds a little quietistic. Um, when, in fact, uh, after this, he takes up arms and fights in the French resistance. Um, but uh, you get the sense that he hopes that the experience of the coming war will be a humbling uh, effect for people, such that, um, you know, he's hoping what he says here is that, um, you know, the Nazis um, aren't uh, an aberration of the in, uh, intelligibility of history. They're not some kind of uh, irrational tumor growing alongside an otherwise rational process. Um, they are the very height of rationality and that the, the coming uh, pain, basically, um, you know, that's going to knock, you know, Europe and in fact much of humanity into the dirt, uh, you know, m might be what helps them realize their utter powerlessness and cry out for help. Of course, that doesn't happen, um, which is, I guess sort of the frustrating thing reading this um, uh, is that uh, he seems right, um, that, that 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 should have been an experience like that. Um, but of course, how does the war end? Um, we drop two atomic bombs on Japan um, and then uh, uh, begin a period of profound technological hubris and arrogance. Um, and have we learned? So is this people just still clinging to what he himself says he can't stop clinging to? Uh, and and that his reticence to let go of all of that in the end is, uh, you know, where we found ourselves after, you know, uh, after, you know, looking back on the cataclysm, basically, that he found himself looking forward to. But, well, you didn't uh, you didn't complete the thought uh, that that he had put in there. You didn't finish off the 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 paragraph and. In turn, it, it gets to the end of the essay. Uh, Fondan continues a little bit more talking about how, how he loves and sees some hope in the physics and the laws, uh, but writes, whoever needs these answers, no matter what the cost and not bowing before the inevitable, will continue to, to demand them, even if they will have to be given to him in a form that repels his human reason. And finally, the last sentence of, um, of the, this essay but when man has failed everywhere, it is no longer up to him to set the conditions. And I, I, that seems to me like the only answer answer to the question you had just just posed. That there there's no way to think yourself out of these problems. There's not that much of a reconceptualization that can occur. The best is a recognition that we are utterly powerless in trying to to solve evil, solve uh, the problems of history, solve uh, all the questions of the natural world. Yeah, and that's totally true. I should mention there's one of the one of the things about Fanon that's so strange is he's a thought person whose thought is very much interrupted um, because he comes to philosophy late. You know, like I mentioned, he was a poet, um, and he, he doesn't really get into philosophy until he meets Lev Shestov. By that point, he's already, um, you know, a little bit older, you know, at least in his, in his 
late 20s by that point. And he goes on this crash course teaching about self-philosophy. And his mentor, Shestov, dies in 1938. And so really... He only has a few years of independent thinking where he tries to figure out what he really thinks. And that means he's already in his 40s. And so they basically have from like 1938 until 1944 when he is arrested. So we have those six years trying to figure out what he's really thinking. This is from one of those early years, 39. And his thought goes in two different directions. One is a, one is a term he coins, and it works the same thing in French and English, ear, ear resignation. This is the revolting not revolting but revolt side of it um where he if you think about the word irresponsible that's different from the word i'm not responsible if i'm not responsible like you said quietistic not my problem irresponsible there's some active thing you've done some active sin of omission if that makes sense like you 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 should have done something different so his term is irresignation i'm not I'm not unresigned. No, I'm not. I'm not just unresigned, right? I, I am actively anti-resigned. I, I'm fighting against resignation, but I don't know where I'm going. If that makes sense. So it's not quietistic. And there's an interesting backstory, or I say post story to this. He dies in 47. He had 40, 40, 44. He had made good friends with a Catholic theologian, Jacques Maritain. And uh, who also wrote entry on poetry, cited Fondan in his works on poetry. Um, and not only had he and Jacques become friends, their wives, um, Raisa, uh, Maritain's wife, and his wife, Genevieve. So Genevieve is a French Catholic, um, goes through a crisis of faith. She actually gets into she actually gets into religion again through Fondan, weirdly enough, who's reading the Bible to her. <laughs> um, and uh, after his death, it's it's a horrible time for her because. She, no, she, they don't, the Nazi didn't write a letter home saying your husband has been killed. No, she has no idea what's happened. So she goes in this desperate search to try to find out what's happened to, to my husband. She interrogates everybody who comes home from the front, everybody who gets released by the Russians after the war. It takes her, you know, 46, 47. Okay, she finally realizes, okay, what happened? You meet someone who saw him go, go to the gas chambers. And at, at that point, she, during that time, she has a crisis of faith herself. She, I guess you could say, reconverts to Catholicism and relies he heavily on, on the Maritans for mental health, but spiritual consolation. But this provokes a uh, response in her own thought practice, which is revealing on Fondant's philosophy looking backwards, because she knew him better than anyone, right? Um, and so Fondant is... Um, we can we can think about it this way. After Fondan dies, um, Jacques Maritain reassures her he and Lean are fine. They're in God's hands. They're safe. He quotes, um, you know, Fondan liked to read Tolstoy's story about um, um, this. I forget the name of the guy who like, hurts his liver or whatever on the hanging a, a curtain, and he 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 died. Uh, um, Ivan Illich, maybe I forget the name of the story. Um, where he, the guy, this guy dies really absurdly. He somehow hurts his, his ribs, you know, hanging a curtain. He dies after horrible pain. Um, but in that time, he actually realizes what death is uh, and what, therefore, life is all about, right? And Fondan had several times expressed the hope that he would actually receive a similar experience. That in one of his poetry, he says, I, death entered into my surprised or astonished eyes. He didn't want to be 
taken by surprise. And Martin said, okay, look, he had the chance to view, you know, death in the eyes at Altrus, obviously. And he's trying to comfort her spiritually, but she isn't quite sure, certain. She's trying to find some continuity between this philosophy of irresignation and some root and some landing place in spiritual hope, if that makes sense for her Catholicism. And she doesn't really come to an answer either, but she pulls out both the revolt and the refusal to settle for anything other than a hope that will be big enough. If that makes sense. So on the one hand, he won't land on this or that answer. But she says the reason he won't land on this or that, or that answer is precisely because of that demand for a spiritual answer that will be enough for the whole human, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that gets at what you're saying. Yeah, I, it, it does. And he just doesn't set this up in a way that seems to lend itself to any kind of resolution. Um, and and I, I think we just have to be comfortable that that's how it ends. <laughs> I mean, I, and that our wanting to tie it up tightly might be a, you know, a, a, a symptom of the disposition that he's, uh, uh, writing against. So, you know, in, uh, in his, uh, you know, in, in honor of his writing, I'll, I won't make any more categorical statements about that. And that's why I was, a, that's why I tried to put place it in point, uh, in, 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 on two lines, because he right. definitely goes on those two lines, and he doesn't settle on either one of them, right? Um, I, I should say one other thing. In the same volume, if you don't have, if you get the chance to read it, Existential Monday, mm-hmm. it's his last work. He, he finishes it in February '44. He gets arrested in March, and there's a metaphor there, taken again from Hegel, that when the hussars, the soldier, the cavalrymen with their sabers drawn, come through, chattering stops, right? That's in a sense true of his life. Um, he was still trying to find his way toward whatever he was finding his way toward uh, when it it ended. Right. Well, I, I, we've traversed his whole life, and I, I I think we should and and there. Um, <laughs> thank you uh, very much, listeners. As always, um, I would love if you uh, leave a review or, or any feedback for us. That'd be greatly appreciated. I'd also strongly encourage you both to uh, read, pick up the uh, collection of essays available on from the New York Review of Books uh, by, by Fondant. We'll make sure to link it. Uh, but also Aaron's wonderful essay, Words Like Windows and Nettles, uh, that we published on a thwart, uh, in large part about Fondant. So Aaron, thank you very much for uh, joining us. This was a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure.